Thomas Kuhn. I'm the campus minister here. Let's see if I can get this situated a little bit. This is actually my second year here. So I moved here in January 2020, uh, which I don't know if you remember 2020, um, but it was not a great time to move somewhere and to get started with a new job. So it kind of feels like this is my first fall. So if you're a freshman out there, I very much feel you. Um, so a little bit about me. I'm married to Molly. She's back there taking a picture. She's really great. And then my daughter is Louise. She's back there. She's really awesome. Also known as the cutest baby in the world. Um, I also want to introduce uh, Maggie. Maggie, will you stand up for us? Yeah. Uh, Maggie is not my daughter, but she is an intern. <laughs> she is an intern with RUF. So me and her are the RUF staff. So if we uh, text you out of the blue and ask you to get coffee, we're not being creepy. Well, I can't speak for Maggie. I'm not being creepy. <laughs> Uh, we just really want to get to know you. This is our full-time job to get to do this. Uh, so we want to get to know you. Um, so we say this every week. At RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. I'm going to move this a little bit. Uh, and so what that means is uh, regardless of where you find yourself, uh, we believe that the way that someone becomes a Christian is by God's kindness, it doesn't have to do with how good of a person you are or how bad of a person you are. Everyone who is a Christian is a Christian because of God's kindness. And this semester, we're going to be working through uh, Jesus' most famous teaching, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, from Matthew 5 through 7, in a series called The Good Life. Uh, so there is a theologian named John Stott who said that the Sermon on the Mount is the best known, least understood, and certainly least obeyed part of Jesus' teaching. So naturally, I thought we should talk about it all semester. Um, I would also add that the Sermon on the Mount is the most admired part of Jesus' teaching. You may have heard um, Gandhi said at one point that if the Sermon on the Mount is what it means to be a Christian, then you can call me a Christian. Um, people admire this teaching because it's, it has these ethical standards that are high and beautiful, uh, but it's also at places it can be difficult and it can be really demanding. And you know this if you read it. But at its most basic level, what is the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount uh, is Jesus, the King, telling us what life looks like in his kingdom. So immediately before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just started proclaiming uh, who he is. And he starts and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Sermon on the Mount is the best explanation of what he means by that. This is what it means to repent. To repent means to just like change your mind. Jesus is saying, change your mind and follow me. I am a king, and this is what my kingdom is like. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, he's describing the good life, what it looks like to follow him in this world. And so this week, we're going to be looking kind of at the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so we'll look at the, the first couple verses that kind of introduce it, and then right after, just to kind of set the stage for what we're looking at with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so I'm going to read the passage for us real quick. And I will pray, and we can go ahead and jump in. So Matthew 5, 1 through 2, and 7, 28, and 29. So starting with Matthew 5. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And then chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So I'm going to pray for us, and we can get started. Father, we do thank you for this, your word. Uh, we thank you that you have spoken. Uh, Lord, that you didn't leave us to figure things out on our own. 
Uh, and so I don't know where people are at tonight. There might be people here who have heard uh, your word proclaimed a billion times. There might be people who this is the first time they've ever come into contact with a Christian group. Um, Lord, wherever we are tonight, I pray that you would meet us where we are, that you would show us Jesus, and in so doing, that you would take us where we need to go. Um, Lord, will you send your spirit and open our eyes, help us to see you as you are. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, the movie Hot Rod is one of my favorites. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie Hot Rod, it's okay. Uh, It's really good. I would encourage you to watch it. It's, It's an absurd movie. Let me just kind of set your expectations there. Uh, so it's a story, it tells the story of these kind of like 30-something-year-old people who have a crew, uh, and the head guy is named Rod Kimball, and he's a stuntman. And as you can imagine from how I described it, all of these people live with their parents into their 30s, so they're really awesome. You can say they're crushing it. Um, but as I said, the movie is absurd in every way, and one of my favorite scenes in the movie uh, it comes when the crew is trying to decide whether it would be okay to let a girl in the crew. So it's all guys. I don't know if I said that explicitly, but I imagine you probably assumed that. Uh, so they're trying to decide whether they can let a girl into the crew. And the crew, they're filling up this pool because Rod, uh, the, the wannabe stuntman, needs to train his lungs to make sure he can hold his breath. And so Rico, one of the guys on the crew, the, the guy who builds ramps, uh, and Dave, another guy, they're having a conversation about what would it be like to add a girl to the crew. Uh, Rico says, man, I, I really don't know about having a girl on the team. And Dave says, all right, Rico, listen, there's this ancient Italian maxim that roughly translates to he who is resistant to change is destined to perish. So why don't you try to open up that mind of yours, you know? And then Rico, who is filling up the pool, sprays him in the face with the hose. And then he looks him straight in the eyes and says, yeah, don't you ever tell me how to live my life again. Don't you ever tell me how to live my life again. All right, so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to tell you how to live your life again and again. And I think if you read the Sermon on the Mount, and if you're an honest person, there are going to be times where kind of the Rico response of like spraying Jesus in the face with a water hose is going to feel really appropriate. Uh, Jesus is going to speak about topics like success, character, anger, sexuality, how we relate to our enemies, anxiety, judgment, Uh, Jesus will say things like, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Or if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Or if someone attacks you and like smacks you in the face, turn the other cheek. Or you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And if you're an honest person and you listen to these things, they make you feel uncomfortable. It makes you feel like you're not measuring up on some level. These are extreme demands, and you're going to find things like this throughout the entire sermon that we're talking about this semester. So everyone, whether you're a Christian or not, I think you need to be asking or kind of relating to the tendency that Rico has of wanting to spray somebody in the face and say, don't you dare tell me how to live my life. Everyone needs to ask the question of Jesus, who are you? Who are you to tell me how to live my life? What gives you the authority to tell me how to live my life? And the passage we're looking at tonight, it tells us that Jesus does indeed have the authority to tell you how to live your life. But what I want you to see more than that is that Jesus' authority is not just acceptable. Jesus' authority is good news. It's a good thing that Jesus has the authority to tell you how to live your life. 
So as we look at this passage, uh, we're just going to consider two points. So the first one is our problem with authority. And second, the good news of Jesus' authority. So our problem with authority and the good news of Jesus' authority. So our problem with authority. Uh, If you would look with me to the first part of our passage, uh, 5, 1, and 2. So just to kind of set the stage, Jesus has just begun his ministry. He's traveling around what is now uh, northern Palestine, and he's healing people, uh, proclaiming repent for the kingdom is is at hand. And, And, you know, you can imagine he attracts a following. People start listening to him. People start being really interested in this guy who just showed up out of nowhere and is healing people. And then we see in our passage that he sees these crowds. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain and he sat down. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So Jesus uh, sees all these crowds, decides to ascend this mountain and sit down and start teaching. And this would have been the posture that a teacher of the day would have had, like a rabbi of the day would go and sit down and begin to teach. So right from the get-go, we see that Jesus assumes that he has something to say to people. He assumes he has something to say. It actually takes a lot of like audacity to just go and sit down and assume you have something to say to someone. But Jesus doesn't, and he doesn't even, he doesn't even question it. And how do people respond to it? We see in 7, 28, and 29, what stuck with people about Jesus? We see in verse 28, it says the people were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. The original language could also be translated uh, dumbfounded. They were floored. They were astonished. But what was so astonishing about what he said? We see in verse 29, it says he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So immediately when they hear Jesus teaching, they start to compare him to the teachers that they had seen before. And for them, this would have been the scribes. The scribes were kind of an ancient Jewish religious authority. Uh, They knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, uh, and they could give you pretty much chapter and verse on everything. And so when the people hear uh, Jesus teaching, they start to compare him to the scribes. And the difference between them is that the scribes, they speak by authority. So they're quoting something. Um, Jesus, even though he's saying almost the same thing, he speaks with authority. So the scribes would say, well, you know, as Moses said in the Bible, uh, what Jesus would say, this is what I say to you. You'll see him saying this throughout the sermon. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. What's he doing there? Jesus is assuming the voice of God in how he teaches. He's assuming the voice of God. And that would be astonishing to these people. So the thing that stands out is that Jesus speaks with authority. And I wonder, uh, I don't know where you're at in terms of familiarity with Jesus, um, but if you were raised in the church, I'd be willing to bet that if I ask you to name three or four words that you would associate with Jesus, I doubt authority would be in the top five. Uh, we, We might say things like gentle or savior, maybe kind, meek, loving, but we wouldn't say authority. Why is that? I think the reason is that most of our associations with authority are negative. When we hear authority, it's not necessarily something that we get really excited about, and I think there's a lot of good reasons for that, and I can think of at least three. Um, First off, I would say abuse is probably the reason that we think that way. 
Much of the reason that we have an issue with authority is because we've grown accustomed to seeing abuse of authority. So uh, last week, just to kind of give you a window into to my life on this, I randomly turned on the morning news. Occasionally I do that. Uh, and I turned it on and they were telling this story about a politician um, who had been accused of sexual harassment uh, by at least 11 different women. The claims were substantiated. Uh, this same politician had also like, covered up a large amount of deaths due to COVID in order to make himself look good. And so he finally stepped down. But on the way out, he made sure to deny any sort of wrongdoing. <laughs> he made sure to play the victim on the way out. And so I see this the first thing in the morning, right? You see this powerful man abusing that authority again and again. And then later in the day, I, you know, I'm listening to a podcast you know, put in the headphones, start listening. I'm listening to a podcast about a pastor who destroyed a church due to his abusive leadership style. And this is just a normal day, right? A normal day. And then in our culture, I mean, especially if you are a 20-something right now, like you came up, like your formative years were during the Me Too movement. Like we are accustomed to seeing power being abused, we're accustomed to seeing power being used to oppress people, power being used to silence people. We're not accustomed to seeing authority wielded in a way that is good. So that might be a reason why we have a problem with authority. Another one I can think of uh, is our cultural value of individualism. Uh, we live in a culture that is suspicious of authority. Uh, I don't know if you know this about America, but we're founded on the rejection of illegitimate authority. So uh, if King George wants us to pay taxes, what do we do? We take his tea and we throw it right in the harbor. That's what we do. It's like in the DNA of our country. Uh, but the best way that I know how to kind of sum this up, uh, we live in a culture where the movie Field of Dreams makes sense. Okay. Have you seen that movie, Field of Dreams? It came out in the 80s. So it was like a, it was a big deal when I was growing up. Uh, it's set in Iowa, which, you know, sucks to suck. It's Iowa. They, they have bad corn. That's what I've heard. Um, but the movie is set in Iowa, and it tells the story of this man who was kind of a hippie, got married to this girl, and became a farmer in Iowa. He's not living the life that he wants to live. He's out in the fields one day working on his corn, as one does, and uh, he hears a voice, and it says, if you build it, he will come. If you build it, he will come. And he keeps hearing this voice again and again, and it starts to freak him out. And then one day he goes back out into the field, and it says, again, if you build it, he will come. And he looks over to a different part of the field, a different part of his acreage, if you will, and he sees this, like, baseball field superimposed on top of the cornfield, like in, in classic 90s style. It's really great. <laughs> And then he starts to put it together. I'm supposed to build a baseball field. And then he sees Shoeless Joe Jackson, a player who had been dead since like the 70s on there. And he puts it together. If I build this baseball field, Shoeless Joe Jackson, who has been dead for a long time, is going to show up and play baseball. And this man goes and tells his wife. He says, you know, I just feel like this is the last chance I have to really do something that I want to do. You know, I feel like everybody in my life is telling me I have to be a farmer. I have to do all these things. There's so much expected of me. And I just want to say no to all that. And I really want to do this. And she, like a psychopath, says, that's a great idea. You should do it. Y'all, that movie would make no sense anywhere in the world except for the United States of America. 
Like nowhere would we ever say, yeah, it's a good idea for you to bulldoze half of your crops. You know, put your family's life on the line. Like that would not make sense to anyone else. But we live in a culture that has this sort of affirmation about like, we need to reject outside authority because we need to be authentic to what's inside of us. Like we need to be the authority that we listen to. Um, You might have heard of uh, Elsa from Frozen. Um, She says in her famous song, uh, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. No right, no wrong, no rules, I'm free. You see, because we think that authority gets in the way of individual rights and self-expression. So because of where we're culturally located, we have a little bit of a problem with authority. But then finally, I think because of our own hearts, we have a problem with authority. There's something inside of us that doesn't really accept external authorities. Uh, We don't like to be told what to do. Uh, I can testify to this. Um, Having a a newborn, there are many times where Molly will ask me something, like to do something, that is like a completely reasonable request that needs to be done. And I am just like angry. Because I'm like, I don't want you to tell me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. You see, the Bible addresses this tendency of the human heart. Uh, It speaks very honestly about this. Uh, From the first pages of Scripture, we see that Adam and Eve, our first parents in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, they chose to break the one rule God had given them because they were suspicious of God's authority. You see, they didn't think that God had their best interest at heart. The Bible calls this sin. Sin is saying to God, you don't want what's best for me. I need to take care of myself. That's what sin is. You see, the root of our problem with authority, it's not so much that we don't think that there should be any authorities. It's just that we don't think that there should be authorities outside of us. We think on a gut level that we should be our own authority. And if you live here, I mean, in the United States of America, like this is like kind of the air you breathe. It would be hard not to feel this way. But the question I want to ask is this. Not only are you the authority of your life, but I want to ask, are you a good authority for your life? Think back over like the last year of your life. Have you been a good authority in your own life? Have you been good at deciding what is right and what is wrong? What kind of standard do you hold yourself to? Right? The people in our passage, they were astonished when they heard Jesus's authority What in your life has the ability to astonish you in that way? To stop you in your tracks? That's your authority. It could be something like parental approval or the the desire for or affection of a romantic partner. Could be getting good grades, having the perfect body. But the question I want to ask is, what happens to you when you fail? What happens when you're not able to meet the standards that you hold for yourself? If you're anything like me, you're not very kind to yourself, are you? So what I want to kind of propose here is that Jesus is an authority who actually is worthy of your submission to him. He's a better authority than you. So I want to focus on the good news of Jesus' authority for the rest of our time. So at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this before the the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he says that as if it's a good thing. He just assumes that is a good thing that I have all of the authority. 
So I want to ask the question, why is that a good thing? Why is it a good thing that Jesus has authority? Um, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of Harry Potter, uh, the Harry Potter movies in particular. A lot of people, like, don't like them. I don't, what's wrong with you if you don't like them? They're really good. Um, but at the end of one of the movies, uh, Dobby the house elf dies. And actually, this is, I just felt like we should talk about that as a group. <laughs> just messing. No, uh, Dobby, Dobby dies at the end of one of the movies, and Harry uh, resolves that he is going to honor Dobby by burying him in a special way. Um, he's not going to use magic. He's going to bury him by digging the grave himself. And as he's burying Dobby, it's a, it's a like, labor-intensive process. They're at the beach. He's doing it. Uh, there's this uh, character named Griphook who sees him uh, digging this grave and sees him burying Dobby. And then later, Harry Potter is having a conversation with Griphook. And, and Griphook can't understand why someone who is a wizard, who has the ability the authority, if you will, to just dig a grave with a wand, why in the world would he ever take the time to just dig a grave like this? And he says to Harry, uh, you are a very unusual wizard. You're a very unusual wizard. You see, Harry kind of, he blew up Grip Hook's categories of what a wizard could be. He had no idea that someone could be like this. And what I want to say to you tonight is that I think Jesus does the same thing for us. You see, Jesus, is, he's a very unusual authority. We might have good reason to be suspicious of authority, but I want to suggest to you, Jesus is different. He's unusual in a good way. So I can think, again, of, of just three ways that Jesus is a different authority. Uh, the first one I want to suggest is that Jesus is consistent. Jesus is consistent. Uh, so in Luke 8, we read the story of Jesus um, raising this little girl from the dead. Uh, there's this very important man in the city who comes and finds Jesus and says, my daughter is dying, I need you to come right away. And so Jesus starts to walk that way. And the story tells us that there's a crowd pressing in around him, uh, and he's like just kind of going there. And then as the crowd is going around him, there's this woman uh, this woman, the story tells us that she, she had suffered a lot in her life. It said she had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, uh, which in this culture, that would have been a huge mark of shame. Um, she would have spent a lot of money trying to resolve this. Uh, in her culture, that actually would have declared her unclean. No one would have wanted to associate with her. And so this woman sees Jesus coming. She's heard all of these stories about who he is, that he can heal people. So she sees this crowd and she kind of like slinks through the crowd like a little kitten to get up to Jesus. And she just reaches out to touch his garment because she knows that even if she touches his garment, she's going to be healed. And so she touches his garment and, and miraculously she's healed. But what happens in the story? Jesus stops deadness tracks right there. And he says, who touched me? <laughs> and then his disciples are like, well, I don't know if you know this or not, but we're surrounded by a lot of people. A lot of people have touched you. And he's like, no, 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 no. I felt power leave me. I know someone touched me. And so he stops, and it, I imagine it probably got awkward. Jesus is asking this question. So the woman comes back up to him, and she's trembling, and she says, I touched you. And she told him uh, her story. And then uh, Jesus looks her in the eye, and he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. See, Jesus didn't have to stop. He could have just kept going. 
See, but Jesus knew the problem was deeper than this woman's physical ailment. Jesus wanted to attack the shame surrounding it as well. So what does he do? He refers to her as a daughter. And this woman is an outcast. This woman is not someone that a famous rabbi should be associating with. Actually, what Jesus should have been doing, he should have been worried about the important man who would come and ask him to heal his daughter. And the story tells us that the daughter actually died while Jesus was taking time to dignify this woman. But Jesus actually went on and then he healed. He, he raised this little girl from the dead as well. And what I want us to see here is Jesus's consistency. Okay? Jesus deals with the small people and the great people in the same way. You see, with Jesus, small people are not ignored. Small people are not abused. Small people are not used, ignored, put away. He treats them with every bit as much dignity as he does the people who some people might consider important. You see, Jesus dignifies people and calls them children of God. Jesus is consistent in the way that he uses his authority. Second, I want to suggest that uh, Jesus is gentle with us in our failure. He's gentle with us in our failure. Uh, The story of Peter and Jesus uh, from the Gospels is also another really interesting one. Peter was kind of one of the big-time founders of the church. Uh, He was kind of Jesus's right-hand man in a lot of ways. But Peter was also extremely confident. Some might say too confident. Uh, He said to Jesus at one point, I'm never going to deny you. And then Jesus came right back and says, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows tonight. And so Peter, you know, I mean, he is like doubling down on this. He's like, I'm not going to deny you. And then Peter, to his shame, as the story goes, denies Jesus. He denies Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would. I wonder if you know what that feels like. What it feels like to uh, come down really hard on something and just be like, I am never going to fail in that way that I failed in the past again. <laughs> to like resolve with all the new energy in you that you're not going to do that thing you've done again. You're not going to drink again. You're not going to watch porn again. You're not going to hook up with that person again. You resolve and then it happens and you're crushed. You're crushed not only because you did the thing, but because you were foolish enough to think that you, you couldn't do, you didn't have to do it. You're crushed and you're, you're, you're enveloped in shame. And so how does Jesus respond to Peter in this situation? Jesus, after he's raised from the dead, uh, he, he takes the time to interact with Peter again. And he comes to him and he asks him this question, Peter, do you love me? And he asks him the question three times. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What's he doing? See, he's taking Peter back to that moment of his greatest shame. He's taking Peter back to that moment where Peter was really confident where he knew that he would not deny Jesus, and where he completely shamefully denied Jesus. Jesus is taking him back to that place, and he's restoring him. He's being gentle with him. And he restores him, and Peter goes on to be a leader in the church. You see, what we see in that is that Jesus is gentle with us in the places where we're hardest on ourselves. He's gentle with us in the places where we're hardest on ourselves. Are you that gentle to yourself in failure? I know I'm not. So often when I fail, I, I just don't want to talk about it. 
or I just want to double down and try harder again next time. But see, that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus Jesus tells the truth. He acknowledges the failure, but also he restores Peter in gentleness. And then third and finally, a way that Jesus is different, I want to suggest to you, Jesus is different because he dies for his enemies. Um, I think most of us are, we're kind of used to uh, Lord Farquaad type authorities, um, like the quote from Shrek, some of you may die, and that is a risk I am willing to take, right? We're used to uh, authorities that, that put themselves ahead of their followers, but what we see with Jesus is that that's completely flipped on its head. Jesus lays down his life for his followers, his followers who are his enemies. You see, by virtue of our sin and shame, the Bible tells us that we are by nature enemies of God. You see, when we read something like the Sermon on the Mount, we don't naturally submit to it. Usually, we we don't like something about it. We question it again and again, and even if we don't question it, we definitely don't live up to it. And that means that we are by nature children of wrath that we're by nature sinners. But yet in the scriptures, we learn that while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. He died for us. He died for his enemies to reconcile us. You see, on the cross, Jesus took the penalty of all of our rejection of his authority on himself. All of the ways that we think we know best, all of the ways where we just want to be in control of our lives, Jesus took the penalty of that on himself. And he did this not only so that we could no longer be enemies. That would be great. But actually, even more than that, he did this so that we could be restored to a full status of sonship. So we could be restored to being his children, sons and daughters beloved and delighted in. You see, a child, when they have a good parent, they don't have to worry about their acceptance before their parents. And that's what Jesus died to secure for us. We don't have to worry about our acceptance before God because Jesus went to the cross. You see, other authorities call us to die for them. But Jesus is the only authority that dies for us. On the cross, he made an end to our sin and shame so he wouldn't have to make an end to us. And that is utterly unique. No one else would do that. So in conclusion, I just want to kind of remind us, sum us up here. Jesus' authority is beautiful. I don't know if beautiful is a word that we associate with authority normally, but Jesus' authority is beautiful. Jesus is not like the abusive leaders that we're used to. Jesus is a gentle king. He's a humble teacher. His authority is good news. It's good news for those of us who are cynical I mean, even as we're describing all of the negative things that we see about abuse of authority in our culture, it would be hard not to be cynical. But Jesus' authority cuts through our cynicism. He's consistent. He's the perfect combination of word and deed. Right? Jesus never said to someone, I'll pray for you, and didn't pray for them. (laughs) He's someone we can trust. Jesus' authority, it's good news for those of us who feel like failures, because Jesus makes space for us. Even though in the Sermon on the Mount we see this, this high and demanding ethical standard, we see that Jesus is attractive again and again to people who are deeply broken, to people who are burnouts. Those are the sort of people that come to Jesus. And Jesus' authority is good news for us when we see how resistant we are to his authority. 
Jesus went to the cross to deal with our authority problem so that we could live under his gentle kingship. So I just want to leave you with this question. As we consider all these authorities, you might be thinking about you know, ways that you're your own authority in your life or things that you kind of submit yourself to, whether that's parental approval or anything like that. And I just want to ask you to take an honest look at that and, and just consider, is that authority better than Jesus? Is that authority as gentle with you as Jesus is? Can you afford to stay away from Jesus? You see, Jesus wants you to live under his gentle kingship because that's what you were made for. Amen.